The Deep Space Economy and Science on the Moon. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Commercial space is booming, fueled by fresh cash, lots of new rockets, and a change in how NASA works with private companies. So what's ahead for this new chapter in private space business? We'll speak with Marilyn Dittmar, president and CEO of the Coalition for Deep Space Exploration, about the deep space economy and her new podcast exploring this topic. Then, fresh science payloads are heading to the moon, ahead of a return of NASA astronauts to the lunar surface. So what's left to learn? We'll speak with our panel of expert scientists on this week's I'd Like to Know segment about the new lunar science on the horizon. That's ahead, but first, let's take a look at the latest space news stories making headlines. The Summer of Mars kicks off next week with the launch of a space probe to the Red Planet. Space agencies are taking advantage of a once-every-two-year window when Mars approaches Earth at its closest points to launch probes and rovers. The United Arab Emirates plans to launch its first-ever Mars probe, called the Hope Mars Mission, from a Japanese launch site next week. The probe will study the atmosphere of Mars using three instruments, a camera and two spectrometers. After launching, the probe will arrive at Mars in February. NASA and the Chinese Space Agency both plan to launch rovers to Mars during this transfer window. We'll have more on these missions next week, and you can find more space news online. Just visit wmfe.org space or give me a follow on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan. Flush with cash and new rockets, the commercial space industry is booming. But it's no longer just NASA driving these companies to reach beyond our own orbit and head to deep space. Maryland Dittmar is president and CEO of the Coalition for Deep Space Exploration and host of the new podcast, The Deep Space Podcast, which explores these efforts and the growing deep space economy. She joins us now. Mary Lynn, thanks for speaking with us. Brendan, thanks for speaking with me. It's, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, well, the last time we had you on the show, we talked about NASA's deep space ambitions and how, how the agency is leveraging the private sector to get them there. Um, your podcast kicks off with conversations with two companies also looking to get into deep space, Astrobotic and, and Made in Space. Um, how are these companies different from, let's say, some of the legacy companies of the past? You know, the legacy companies have a legacy, right? They've developed over many decades. I've worked for both Boeing and Lockheed in the past, both as an employee for, in the case of Boeing and, and Lockheed and as, an, as a consultant. And in both those cases, the companies do a lot of investment in new technologies. Um, they do a lot of partnering with um, smaller firms who are bringing new technologies to the market. So that's actually always been going on. The thing that's different in the space world these days has really been the availability of capital, to be honest with you, and the growing interest in the idea that there may be a market for goods and services that are, um, they have space somewhere in the value chain, right? So they may be produced in space or they may exist to service space or space um space agencies or other people who want to go into space. And as the technology has proliferated across the globe and has become more available to folks that have access to significant amounts of capital, because this is not a cheap game by any, by any means, um, you have folks that are really breaking through and innovating and doing some pretty interesting stuff 
um, that either may not be on the radar of the bigger companies, of the legacy companies, or because they're smaller companies and they're nimble, uh, they're able to push through barriers to innovation faster. And so I think those are the, some of the differences that we're seeing now. And we're also kind of entering this, a new world of partnerships, right? It's no longer mm-hmm. NASA asking a company to, you know, giving them a blueprint and saying, design this. The agency is looking for a service rather than hardware. Is that kind of how the, the, the market is evolving? I think that's how the market is evolving, um, especially when the agency has some idea that the private sector may be able to actually meet the requirements, right? For a long time, it wasn't clear that that was the case. And I think it is increasingly becoming clear that that's the case. And so depending on the timeline that the agency is addressing and the particular goals that it's addressing, they're still probably going to be, you know, sort of designed by specification in the sense that, You'll have uh, contracts for efforts that are going to be let. They're going to have much tighter requirements and require more government oversight. So, for example, we're you know there's a lot of renewed interest in nuclear thermal propulsion, right? As an example of a technology that has been looked at before and people have tried developing it before, um, looking at it again for very mm-hmm. long distances in space. And that's one that because of its very nature, there'll probably be more government oversight and uh, more traditional contracting methods. Although, you know, I could be wrong about that. But right now, I think that's probably the case. Although some other, some other aspects of nuclear power might be different than that. Some of these other things that are um, like trying to figure out how to use regolith, for example, to develop structures or do 3D printing on the moon, the kind, some of the kinds of things that Maiden Space is interested in. Those things, yeah, it's more, it's more like the agency saying, hey, you know, we have these needs. How would you fulfill them? Which is great. You, you bring up a really good point is that, you know, there's, there's more of these companies that are, that are nimble coming online. There's a lot of capital out there for these companies. But something that uh, Andrew okay. Rush mentioned in, in the podcast interview you had was that, you know, they're increasing the availability and access to space as well that that has to play a part in in this kind of private boom right it's 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 easier to get your things into space right it's easier to get your things into space um right now spacex and um it's it's soon to be boeing and sierra nevada is also obviously working on uh dream chaser and then northrop grumman um they're all providing or will provide access to space in low Earth orbit. Um, the, the further distances, Falcon Heavy can address some of those, ULA's Vulcan can address those. Right now, Atlas V can address those for ULA. And there's a host of smaller launchers that are coming online. Now, how many of those are going to survive? I don't know. At last count, we got like 135 companies globally that are trying to build some capability of launch vehicles. And while that enthusiasm is great, there just really isn't enough market right, to, to sustain that. But it has meant that folks who are interested in getting things into space, for example, especially things like CubeSats or SmallSats, where people are doing some very innovative things with that platform, there's a lot of different ways now that you can sort of shop 
um, for lack of a better term, to get your stuff into space. And and so that that is much, much different than that landscape used to be. Uh, let's talk a little bit about those kind of, you know, delivery services, quote unquote, that are available. One of the companies you spoke with in the podcast was Astrobotic. Bring us up to speed. You know, what is that company working on it? And, and what are they doing for NASA that's helping kind of propel this growth? So Astrobotic um, has been working with NASA for a long time, um, several years now. They were part of the Lunar Catalyst program, which was a no-cost to NASA, that is. In other words, it was a, a shared partnership that did not involve exchange of, of, of money, but was a joint effort to develop guidance navigation systems that could be used um, for you know, activities around the moon, right? And Astrobotic was one of the participants in that. Since then, they've become a partner in the CLIPS program, um, which is essentially a commercial lunar platform services. Um, it's a delivery service that uh, involves Astrobotic and some other companies who are creating the means to deliver small payloads, relatively small, small to mid-sized payloads, um, to the lunar surface. And so these can include everything from instruments, right? You just want to land some instruments on the surface to rovers, um, to uh, probably some packages that we haven't even seen yet. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about Astrobotic is they have a couple of billion dollars in, um, in, in basically customers, right? And that includes NASA, but not just NASA, right? They've, had, they've got customers from all over the world. There are a number of nations who are involved in working with Astrobotic, as well as a number of universities and also industry partners who are interested in either um, participating with Astrobotic in their sort of little mini program that they've got going there or um, are actually interested in using those services to put things on the surface of the moon. And very recently, they were selected um, to work with the Viper program, which is going to be this means by which NASA is going to engage in prospecting on the surface of the moon for volatiles. By that, I mean things like oxygen and water, ice, essentially a, a way to examine what's going on actually at the lunar surface and maybe a few inches below the lunar surface, um, maybe a few feet below the lunar surface, okay, to, to find uh, basically materials that we can then use, right, uh, once we have industrial processing capability there. And you kind of touched upon it, but, you know, this, this CLIPS program that you mentioned is kind of laying the groundwork for human lunar exploration, right? The, this is this is the the program that's going to send the science to prepare us to to live and work on the moon. Yeah, um, it definitely is. And um, I also want to make sure I do a shout out to the scientists who are also just interested in lunar science, right? Uh, there have been a lot of them that have been really interested in getting back to the moon in um, just for the just for the sake of science. Whether or not that science leads directly to findings that would be useful to the human exploration and potential development of the moon or not, um, there's a lot to learn having to do with lunar science. And so the CLIPS program is actually uh, is managed, um, certainly has the interest of the human exploration uh, group at NASA, but also the science mission directorate and a lot of the instruments that the CLIPS uh, hopefully will be able to place on the moon and astrobotics certainly is a, is a large part of that. Um, will be science instruments. And then the Viper thing, that Viper program that I just described is definitely related to ideas of future. We talk about mining of regolith, um, whether or not it's mining, but certainly processing um, of regolith. We have a whole lot to learn there, right? We, we have ideas um, that we're going to be able to extract uh, 
ice, water ice um, from regolith and then eventually process it to get oxygen and get hydrogen um, that we can later use for fuel, among other things. But we have a long way to go, actually, before we're, we're able to do that. And so these, these particular uh, missions inside the Eclipse program and the Viper mission they're really, really important to helping our understanding of the moon. Yeah, the Viper mission is going to be something very exciting to look forward to, that little rover <laughs> heading yes. there. <laughs> yes, um, it really is. I'm excited. I can't wait. Uh, Mary Lynn Dittmar, let, let's talk a little bit about the other company you spoke with um, on this new podcast, um, Maiden Space. You spoke with um, uh, Andrew That's Rush. Right. How do they, what, what are they working on and how do they fit into uh, you know this, this broad picked picture of, of deep space exploration? So Maiden Space, uh, has the distinction of being the first uh, company ever to fly a 3D printer in space. Um, they flew a 3D printer on board the space station. And I believe the first thing that it ever did was print a tool. Um, and what they were trying to do was demonstrate the utility of having what amounts to, in that case, a mini manufacturing hub on board the ISS. So rather than having to uh, pack all your tools with you, you could essentially pack the raw materials and then um, uplink specifications for a tool that could be made essentially on demand. So depending upon what happened in low Earth orbit, and then you know you can see where this is going to start to go, so bear with me for a minute, depending on what happened in low Earth orbit, and maybe you have a need that arises that you didn't anticipate, Rather than having to wait for this to be manufactured or formulated and manufactured on the ground and then have it packed onto a, um, you know, a progress vehicle or a, a, a Northrop Grumman Cygnus vehicle um, or SpaceX Dragon, you, know, you could just manufacture it right there and have it right there. And so the convenience of it and also the utility of it um, and being able to maybe use materials that you wouldn't have used if you were shipping the thing up from the ground um, it was, it was really what this was a demonstration of. And also, frankly, because things work really different in micro-G. The physics is not the same as we're used to. I mean, the physical laws are the same, but the way they get played out in microgravity is not the same as on Earth. So really needed a proof of concept that this could be done in space in the first place. So if you take that and you extrapolate it to going to a distant location, let's say the moon, and you're able to make use of the raw materials that are right there, Think about all the savings you might be able to get depending on what it is you can manufacture and what you need to manufacture. For one thing, you're going to have significant mass savings in terms of trying to ship stuff from Earth. And when it comes to spaceflight, mass is the thing. It's all about the mass, right? Because it's all about how much lift you need and how many um, launches you need in order to be able to get things someplace. If you can do some of that manufacturing right there, Okay, in-situ resource utilization means, you know, essentially on the spot inside that system, um, then you can save cost, money, time. So the work that they're doing, um, and people say, oh, that's just theoretical, but out in Hawaii, there was a project um, that was done in affiliation with the university called Pisces, and it actually was using basalt, volcanic basalt, to do 3D printing, you know, to start looking at how you can do things like manufacture bricks, for example, I and mean, if you want to build a structure. And basalt and regolith, okay, have a lot in common. And so there's there was some initial work here done on, on Earth that led people to believe that maybe that would be possible. The other, I don't say the other thing, because Maiden Space has had a lot going on, is Arconaut, 
um, which is essentially a robotic capability to do manufacture and assembly in orbit, but uh, eventually perhaps in distant orbit. And so uh, they're a very innovative company and they've, they've done a lot of um, and have innovative work and there's a lot of promise in the technologies that they're trying to develop that will just sort of help enable the entire effort of exploration. At the start of our conversation, you said that there is a lot more capital going into the space industry. Um, we've talked mm-hmm. a lot about the big customer here, right, of, of NASA, but who else is interested in deep space exploration? What other stakeholders are out there and how are they kind of fueling this um, you know, the surge of capital into the private space industry? Well, I mean, you know, we, of course, we know about SpaceX and its investors, um, including its its CEO and, and also um, Blue Origin and its CEO, um, who I think as of last week became the world's wealthiest man. Did I read that correctly? I think, I mean, he basically built a bank called Amazon, right? Um, yes. <laughs> sort of to, <laughs> to, uh, to fund his endeavors. And, but, Beyond that, right, are the institutional investors. And for somebody like me, I've been involved in commercial space. I first started getting involved in commercial space. And back when I worked with Boeing, I was the chief scientist for their commercial payloads program. This is like 1998. And then before that, um, uh, I was actually involved in it in the early 90s and some other um, small business efforts. And the um, I think that the thing that's really changed is the number of institutional investors um, that are that are beginning to come forward now, and you have you know sort of these forecasts, some of which I think are over optim- overly optimistic. Um, and I'm talking about before COVID now. Okay, I mean that that the, the pandemic has obviously changed the landscape to some extent, and we're really not going to fully understand that. I think probably for a year or more, but um, but the but those institutional investors that are coming forward have been spurred on by forecasts that are done by folks like Merrill and uh, Goldman Sachs and and some others who I think could be fair to describe them as bullish um, on on the market for space related you know goods and services and um, that's brought uh, some funds you know um, and fund managers to the to the table. Um, to start investing some capital, a little bit here, a little bit there, but you do see it. And there is still a lot of capital, liquid capital in the globe, on the globe that's sort of looking for a home, right? Um, I mean, we saw it a couple of decades ago when it boosted, and it basically, you know, busted into IT, right? Um, the, the sort of big IT investment that happened. And space is, um, I think, poised to become that. We need a few clear closures on some business cases and clear uh, return on investment uh, for investors before I think you'll really see it, um, you know, in a different way than you see it now. Um, Because investors are like everyone else, you know, they need to see return on their investments and space has some risks associated with it. Um, I I made a comment recently to someone else that was interviewing me that, you know, if you if you don't have a pretty long investment window, if you're not willing to let your ride your money ride for a while, you probably shouldn't put it on the table in this business. But I think that you're, you know, there is a lot of interest in it, right? And I think people are kind of waiting to see what happens with that, with those returns. That was Mary Lynn Dittmarsh. She's the president and CEO of the Coalition for Deep Space Exploration and the host of the new podcast, The Deep Space Podcast. Get it wherever you get this show or visit exploredeepspace.com. Still to come, fresh science experiments are heading to the moon. What do we hope to learn? Are We There Yet is back in a minute. 
You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. Fresh science payloads are heading to the moon soon, ahead of the return of NASA astronauts to the lunar surface. So what's left to learn? UCF physicists Josh Caldwell, Addy Dove, and Jim Cooney are here to explain the new lunar missions on the horizon, and Addy Dove kicks off the conversation. Um, yeah, we're, so, so NASA is planning on going back to the moon, and there's a lot of discussion of sort of the human return uh, to the lunar surface, but um, the, to lay the groundwork for that, there's going to be a lot of really awesome science missions that happen first, um, and that's one of the, the early ones is going to be this mission called Viper. Basically, uh, a little rover that's going to go to the south polar region of the moon to look for ice. So one of the big questions we have, and this is sort of a, a relatively recent discovery, is how much water is there at, the, at the, the lunar poles and how accessible is it? Because water is a super important resource, not only to, that we think of for like drinking water and things like that, but for um, you can convert it into rocket fuel. You can use it for all sorts of processing on the lunar surface if you're going to have a sustained presence there. I mean, what else can we learn from going back other than, you know, where this water is? Um, what, what other uh, interesting science uh, exploration is there to do on the lunar surface? So specifically in the polar regions, um, there's a lot of questions about sort of the evolution of the moon, um, how it's changed over time. Um, because the moon is right here with us at Earth, if we can look at the history of what's happened on the lunar surface, it can tell us about the history of what's happened to the Earth, sort of astronomically speaking. Um, so we can look at sort of how um, many impacts there have been over time and what types of materials they brought to the surface. And we think that um, the polar regions, so some of the regions at the poles stay dark for a really long time. They're basically craters that don't get direct solar illumination. We think that those are the places that are more likely to have ice that could be millions of years old. The moon being our next door neighbor here, uh, or maybe even our, our uh, housemate in the solar system, is is a great sort of witness plate for things that go on that the Earth kind of tends to ruin with all sorts of fancy things like wind and rain and earthquakes <laughs> and plate tectonics and all that stuff. And the moon just sort of like keeps this really great record. And we have a lot of very strong evidence that shows that the moon formed from an impact four and a half billion years ago onto the earth. But there are a lot of details about that that are still um, being studied. And as Addie was saying, how much water is there is going to be a very interesting clue as to how much water hit the moon and therefore how much water hit the earth. And one of the big questions that we're trying to understand is where did all the earth's water come from? Did it form together with the earth or was it impacting the Earth from comets or what combination of those two things? As Addy kind of alluded to, you know, NASA's laying the groundwork with these small robotic explorers. There's going to be some human missions to the moon, but ultimately NASA wants to have like a permanent science base on the lunar surface. Um, what what excites you all as, as both, you know, cosmologists and, 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 you know, planetary scientists about having a science base on the moon? Well, for one, I mean, the moon doesn't have an atmosphere. That's amazing, right? So that's, uh, that stinks if you're trying to live there, but it's really <laughs> great if you're trying to set up uh, uh, a telescope there, right? One of our primary problems with an Earth-based telescope is, of course, the atmosphere. It's turbulence in the atmosphere. It's The atmosphere absorbs light at many different wavelengths. If I have no atmosphere, then uh, we're in great shape. So we, you know, we try our best. We build our telescopes on the top of mountains. We put telescopes into space. But that's challenging. If you have a base on the moon and you have a telescope on the moon, you have no atmosphere and you can easily fix it because you're going to uh, have folks there to be able to do it. So uh, that's exciting you know, for all the realms of astronomy to be able to have 
easily fixable telescopes that have no atmospheric issues. The Apollo missions had a had a UV telescope actually that they they flew, um, and there's a big proposal that that's been in the works for a long time, and it's made more traction recently of putting a radio array on the the far side of the moon. So this is the side of the moon that never faces the Earth, um, and the whole point of that is that it's it's radio quiet. It's more radio quiet on that side. So. Um, this is no offense, Brendan, but there's all these radio waves that get uh, <laughs> broadcast here on Earth um, at, at lots of different frequencies, right? Um, and those create a lot of interference when we're trying to do radio astronomy. Um, and so one of the proposals is to, that on the far side of the moon, the moon itself actually blocks a lot of that. And so you can put um, a really sensitive radio array and look way, way, way back in the history of the universe to what's called the dark ages, for instance, um, mm -hmm. and where we think that hydrogen is emitting in, uh, and it's been shifted enough that it's in radio waves so we can mm -hmm. detect it. And this is the proposal where it's actually like taking a crater on the moon and turning it into a radio dish, right? That's one idea. There's some where you just sort of deploy antenna, sort of roll them out on the surface. Um, the nice thing about radio antennas, right, is they don't care too much uh, exactly what the surface looks like or even if you get dirt on top of the antenna because the, the radio wavelengths are long enough that they'll be able to sort of go through that. Um, so you could actually just sort of roll some stuff, some antenna out on the surface and it, it would work really well. This this mission Viper is a part of uh, kind of the commercialization of, of NASA and space exploration, right? So the part of the commercial lunar payload uh, services. As as research scientists, um, how exciting is it that there are so, much, so many more opportunities to get experiments to places like the lunar surface or, or a CubeSat, uh, you know, in an orbit around the moon, you know, does that just kind of open up the possibilities for, for research for you all? Absolutely. I mean, the more avenues there are to get instruments and experiments, telescopes, payloads to new environments, uh, that really helps us, you know, advance our investigations a lot more quickly. It's super frustrating sometimes to have a great idea for an experiment, but it requires being in space or being on the moon or some special environment. And you've got the experiment, you've got everything you need, but how do you get there? You know, that's, that's something that requires something beyond the scientific expertise of making that experiment. And so with all of this new commercial activity of going into space, uh, there's definitely an acceleration of, uh, and a broadening of the access to space. A lot of that's also enabled just by advances in technology that allow us to do a lot of these experiments with smaller, cheaper, uh, less massive devices so that they're easier and less expensive to get into space as well. Yeah, we can think about how much we've learned from all the Mars rovers, for instance, right? So mm -hmm. we've actually been sending things to Mars at a fairly regular cadence for the last 20-ish years. Um, but those have all been mostly NASA or, or larger missions, but there's only been a few of them, and we've learned a ton. Um, but we actually haven't been sending things to the moon on as regular a basis. Uh, so now a lot of people will be able to send instruments and do science. And, and also when you can fly more frequently, you can fly things that are maybe less advanced that you can test on the moon. You can you can do a lot more development and do a lot, get a lot more understanding of how things work as well. So it's a really cool, it's a really great opportunity that hopefully we're going to be able to fly a lot more. That was UCF scientists and hosts of the podcast, Walk About the Galaxy. Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. You can get their podcast, Walk About the Galaxy, wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. If you've got a question for our panel, send us an email. Are we there yet at WMFE.org? Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV. 
Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. You can make a donation to this show and the other great journalism you rely on each and every day at WMFE.org. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.